Election day in many states across this country. Okay, front and back. Thank you. Among the races being decided, the governorship in Mississippi. I just like to get around early and get it over with. I want to vote. I believe in it. Political analysts will be looking for the intensity of Republican support for the president and the amount of Democratic strength in the suburbs. It's not just the U.S. Britain's prime minister is accused of a cover-up involving Russian meddling. Live to London and CBS's Vicki Barker. Boris Johnson accused of sitting on a report about alleged Russian infiltration into UK politics ahead of the 2016 Brexit referendum and beyond. This is nothing less than an attempt to suppress the truth from the public and from Parliament and it is an affront to our democracy. Opposition lawmaker Emily Thornberry noting Johnson himself has been linked to wealthy Russians close to Vladimir Putin but the clock's running out here. Once Parliament adjourns today the report can't be released until lawmakers reconvene after next month's election. Deborah. A new study from the FDA counts the number of kids who are vaping. One in four high schoolers and 10% of middle schoolers report currently using e-cigarettes. The study from the Food and Drug Administration says that equals 4.1 million high school students and 1.2 million middle school students. In the last 30 days, Juul was reported as the most frequently used brand, with most using the flavored kind. Matt Piper, CBS News. Police in Coral Springs, Florida, say a 9-11 dispatch supervisor couldn't tell herself away from Netflix. That's not what you think. She's taken care of me my whole life. Records show Julie the Dodd was so engrossed in the movie I Am Mother, she waited 34 minutes to spend dispatch to dispatch someone to help a woman whose car windshield had been shot out. The victim tells the Sun Sentinel she finally drove herself to the police station. The Dodd is expected to get a two-day suspension. S&P futures are up seven. This is CBS News. Behind every moment shared with the ones you love, is a plan that helped make it happen. Learn more or find an advisor at MassMutual.com. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company presents... And Doug. Lemu, when we're not telling people that Liberty Mutual customizes your car insurance so you only pay for what you need, I've actually been moonlighting as a DJ. Check it! Here's the good part! Only pay for what you need at LibertyMutual.com. Country Legends, presented by O'Reilly Auto Parts. Garth Brooks made history as the first ever performer to hold a concert inside Notre Dame Stadium. When he looked out at the crowd, he was happy to see all different kinds of people enjoying his music. It's very sweet to look out there and not see a demographic. It's just people who love music, and that's the kind of people I love. Think O'Reilly Auto Parts for all your car care needs. Get guaranteed low prices and excellent customer service at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. CBS's Bud Mishkin continues his series on the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall came down not with a bang, but with a press release, read by an East German official who announced that travel restrictions would be lifted without delay. CBS News correspondent Alan Pizzi was in the room. I certainly didn't take him at his word at the time, and but his Berliners did, and off they came. CBS News correspondent Dan Revive started the day in London quickly hopped a flight to Berlin and headed straight to the wall. That's the night that I saw the end of communism. Bud Mishkin, CBS News. His score was the pits, but guess who's still standing after last night's Dancing with the Stars on ABC? It's Sean Spicer. Judge Len Goodman said Mermaid had better feet, and Bruno Tonioli said Dorian Finding Nemo had a better sense of direction. Former White House spokesman Sean Spicer lived to dance another day after dressing up like a sailor for a jazz routine. No spoilers on who was eliminated, but Spicer's been a fan favorite. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Ready to create your own income with your own home-based business where there's no such thing as getting laid off? If a billionaire entrepreneur spent five years and $20 million searching for the next big trend, Wouldn't you want to know what he found? If you're serious about making money from home without having to leave home, then write this down. www.goherenext.com You decide your income. Get the facts now. Goherenext.com
Brought to you by Attorney Tax. If you're in trouble with the IRS and owe at least 10000 in back taxes, listen to this important public announcement. The IRS is now offering a special program called the Fresh Start Initiative, which can offer significantly reduced settlements that can reduce your liability by thousands of dollars. If you're approved and qualified, the IRS will stop the collections against you. Get the help you need by calling the Consumer Hotline. 800-333-9896. Stop by. Minuteman Press offers everything from a single copy to booklets, brochures, or business cards, and more. Minuteman Press is Athens' full-service printer with design services unmatched by anyone else. The quality you want and their prices are unsurpassed. And large format printing is also available for posters and banners up to 44 inches wide. Minuteman Press, 17 West Washington in Athens. Call 593-7393. That's 593-7393. Did you know that 12 to 50,000 people die each year from flu-related illnesses? Some people recover from the flu within a week or two. But children, seniors, and those with serious medical conditions are at a higher risk for complications. I'm Lynn Fruth. Stop in your Fruth Pharmacy today and ask about your flu shot. The flu and other immunizations help protect you, your loved ones, and the community. Fruit, your hometown family pharmacy. Meals on Wheels gives me food since I'm not able to cook for myself and my husband. Since being on the program, I have lower blood pressure and a lower sugar count. We appreciate the program so very much. Hawking Athens Perry Community Action cares for Athens County seniors. This November, vote for Issue 21 to keep Meals on Wheels in motion. Paid for by the future Neighbors Levy Committee. If you are between the ages of 5 and 8 years of age and always dreamed of what it would be like to play hockey, you must try the Blue Jackets Learn to Play program this November 7th. For only $115, your kid will be provided free brand new gear from head to toe, as well as five weeks of training. The Blue Jackets are coming to Athens. This is an opportunity for your kids to try something new and learn the great sport of youth hockey. The time is now for you and your kids to experience the Blue Jackets coming to town in order to learn a new sport and the gear that comes with it. Register now at bluejackets.com backslash learn to play. Well, it's kind of dark and dreary outside and damp too. Rain. Light rain anyway. Make sure you're using those headlights and uh, drive safely, please. Hey, we got a special edition today. Melissa Thomas joins us. She is a professor over in our College of Osteopathic Medicine. And she's simply fascinated with different um, things that we can do to make ourselves healthier. And then had a pet project. Where she started to examine some of the uh, unique uh, ways of living, like, um, well, particularly faith-based. So, like, Amish and Mennonite and that sort of thing. So, we're going to learn about it today. So, um, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. (laughs) I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, listen, um, you you travel a couple miles each day to get to work, don't you? (laughs) I do, right, sharing a little time between uh, Columbus and um, a little town north of Marietta called Whipple in Washington. And that's where you live, really, right? Yes, it is. Well, uh, and you didn't live too far away from that growing up, eh? No, I didn't, right on the Ohio-West Virginia border in a little town called Newport. Yeah. So uh, what, what, um, um, I guess I got to ask, is your parents' backgrounds? Because I sometimes think that, you know, what they are, had some influence over their children. So uh, what, what, what did your folks do? Yeah, thanks for asking. 
Um, I have a pretty tight-knit family. My father actually retired from what had formerly been Union Carbide. He sure. was a, um, a pipe fitter, and my mother worked. Um, she was a stay-at-home mom and then worked in the local kitchen cafeteria before moving on into um, a bank mm-hmm. and then in a doctor's office. And then I, um, I stole her away, actually, and she's been working with me on our Amish and Mennonite Breast Cancer Project for the last 21 years, uh, serving as our key breast educator. Well, now you just opened up a topic that I hadn't uh, quite come across yet, and that is that you you are focusing on breast cancer amongst the Amish and Mennonites. So we'll get back to that because that's uh, it's a unique um, approach, you know? Sure. But um, now my wife uh, had breast cancer, and and now a reoccurrence, right? Ah, oh, yes. So, so sorry um, two thousand two, and then in two thousand seventeen, it was uh, it had finally been found to be metastasized, right? Yeah. And now it's in bones and things like that. But um, it's the very same cancer as two thousand two was. Really and uh, we've yes. done everything up at the James. So it's, uh, it's you know, you, you work your hardest to do the best thing you can. And uh, still time, still, it doesn't always work out perfectly, does it? No, it does not. Well, so let's, let's uh, talk about um, um, your how you went about deciding what you wanted to be when you grew up, you know? <laughs> Um, so what were some of the activities you were involved in? Well, do you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother and a younger sister. So one each. And um, were they equally interested in, in um, topics such as yours? No. I, um, I often joke that if I hadn't looked exactly like my mother, I, I might have been one of the adopted ones in the family. <laughs> I loved academia. I loved research. I loved uh, my sport was science fair, and I was the science fair student all throughout my um, junior high and high school years. So I loved studying and, in fact, wanted to be a meteorologist. So this is a bit of a, um, of a sideline. Well, <laughs> we can work this out. You know, we, the weather is still an important part of our lives by all means. It Even though we is. have all these apps and everything, um, still understanding it is a big deal. And I had some meteorology, too. Hmm. So, um, golly, when I look at your um, your uh, resume, uh, you've had so many different associations and and um, with, with both as a student uh, as well as um, uh, participating in various studies and, and, and in so many different locations, too. Um, clearly, you loved being a student. That I did, and still do. I still consider myself always willing to learn and, and grow from those experiences that we have in life. Now, I noticed here you wrote down that your initial schooling was at Ohio State. Yes, it was. I was the first in my family I, to I, head away I, to college. So. i got to tease you. Okay. <laughs> the Ohio State, right? I love when it's missing. And um, <laughs> it's, it's missing from your report. But uh, then on to Central Michigan and Walden and so on and so forth. Um, well, how, So why did you pick Ohio State? Yeah, you know, growing up in such a small town, um, I, I guess for me, I wanted an opportunity to know what resources that were available. And we were in an area with limited um, access to so much, right. especially with respect to health. And I only applied to one college. I wanted to go to Ohio State. And I think part of that was, again, having those opportunities in an urban environment um, with all the resources at a very large institution. Um, available, and that was really probably one of the best experiences I had of getting out. Again, being the first in my family to leave and experience um, the world. Uh, and it sounds silly to say that, just being two and a half hours away in Columbus. But for me, it was such an amazing experience to interact with other students and other cultures. Well, I grew up on that campus, basically being from Worthington, and um, you know, it is a great place. Yes. And there are so many excellent opportunities there. Yes, there are. Now, um, 
but but now you've done it, and and then as I said, Central Michigan and Walden and uh, involved with various national centers for different uh, ailments and and uh, education of of patients and docs alike. What you know? What, how come you never pursued the actual medical degree? You know, um, it's a great question. I. For me, I knew, I think since I was a little girl, that I wanted to do something uh, related to providing access to to care. I was that silent freedom fighter, and that was based really from my grandmother dying when I was only a a little over 14 years old of a cancer that could have been prevented had she had access to life-saving education and access and resources. Mm -hmm. And as a little girl watching, you know, your hero die and die a horrible death I didn't really know at that age what I wanted to do but I wanted to make sure that her death was not in vain and really having an opportunity to pursue um, public health which for me was exciting because it really centered on prevention and early detection of disease well you know you think of doctors and um, you know they become very specialized in very specific areas yes and you know health education it's it's trying to help people so that they may not have to go see that specialist someday that's the hope we know many diseases can't be prevented or or we're still working on cures but i think what's always haunted me are um those diseases that could be prevented or at least detected early and have lives saved. And that's really been a big passion of the work I, I do is working with underserved communities in, in fighting disease um, by putting communities first in that process. Well, so here you are. Uh, let's see. I, I didn't even put a year to it. Nineteen <laughs> looks like 1994 you graduated from Ohio State in psychology. And, yeah, I actually triple majored in political science, Spanish, and psychology. <laughs> well, one of those there is a little bit peculiar, the political science thing. <laughs> Why did you pick on that? I I went away to college, and I wanted to be a lawyer, and I double majored in political science and Spanish and wanted to save the world. And I realized once I got into some of the political science classes, I was more interested in human behavior um, than I was really more the, the political science aspect. So I added that psychology degree to to really round out that that experience. Have you met Florenz Plasman? No, I have not. Okay, he's our new Dean of Arts and Sciences. He's my next-door neighbor. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I think of um, uh, one of his specialties is political science, and he is teaching in that, uh, but he has another as well. You know, and, and so then Nuquette Sandel, right? Uh, you know, here she's the head of the political science, so in in theory, she's his boss there. Mm-hmm. But he's the boss of the college. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a funny thing. And this political science stuff, mercy, when you consider, you know, Turkey and the Kurds and ISIS and all this stuff that she's so knowledgeable about, being a native of Turkey. Well, we're going to have her on the show down the road. Anyway, I, I got off track. So what about, um, you know, political science, though? Uh, interesting that that would be in there as well. Yeah, and, you know, I have to say that those those early degrees were so important to me because they, again, reinforced and taught me the importance of research um, in really addressing concerns of the day and in the community. So... I'm very grateful to that experience um, in those formative years and shaping, again, a different viewpoint and values and and theories and models and how we address issues of the day. Now, you had uh, four or five years up at Walden. That's in Minneapolis, Walden University. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm not terribly familiar with it, but my guess is if you selected it, it must be notable for some reason. Absolutely. And at the time when I wanted... To go back to school and pursue my Ph.D., once I had discovered public health, the, um, the challenge at the time was finding a program that still allowed one to work and go to school. And 
At the time, there were a few online programs, and Walden University had two interesting aspects. One, um, they did offer an online hybrid program, so we were required to attend certain residencies throughout the country. Mm -hmm. I spent two summers at Indiana University in Bloomington. But Walden was formed based on this whole notion of the importance of social change. And before one can graduate from the university, one has to prove that the work you're doing is making an impact in the world. And I met with students and faculty from all over the world who were committed to improving their communities. And it was such an inspiring experience. So Newport, Ohio, right? Yes. Um, Growing up in Newport, um, you didn't have uh, all the opportunities we have in Athens. but. Sure, right. Um, still, when you get outside of Athens proper, uh, there's a lot of sim- similarities, aren't there? There certainly are, absolutely. And what, what, you know, roll out a list of what we're talking about here. Well, we live in a part of the state that just is absolutely beautiful. Our natural resources are... Um, are just so breathtaking. We know that with influx of tourism, especially from just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But it's a, I think it's a lifestyle and it's a community that um, cares about one another. It's much more community focused. And I think so often we look at the, um, we look at the deficits in communities, but I think, you know, growing up in Appalachia and seeing this, the, the beautiful landscape that we have and the, the resources of not just with our natural um, environment, but also with, you know, the individuals who make up those communities. So true. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful place to, it's a beautiful place to live, um, but it's grateful to have those experiences at Athens and other larger cities that can provide those rich experiences for students and, and community members alike. But uh, what I'm getting at, and I, uh, let's see, where was I yesterday? Oh, Rich Vetter spoke yesterday at Rotary mm-hmm. at noon, and he was talking about how the economies, um, you know, how Athens is unique in Athens, but the county and Vinton County and many of our surrounding counties are um, kind of sad. Yeah. And and impoverished. Yes. And so on and so forth. And I'm, you know, I've, I've lived here 46 years. I love it. I'm so bullish about Athens. <laughs> um, but I know this stuff is true. Yes, it is. And, you know, we try to do our part to help different organizations that serve that population that is not as fortunate as we. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think people don't stay here just because they're stuck. I think they realize there's a quality of life here that is also very desirable. Anyway, I'm, I'm talking. You should be talking. You're <laughs> our guest. What, do you, what What's your take on... Poverty and and those kind of issues and how they affect people's health and well-being. Right. And we know that they do. You know, um, over the course of the last couple decades, we've realized that in looking at the importance of what we call the social determinants of health. And, and those are factors that, you know, exist in our daily lives that, that do impact our, our health. And you mentioned poverty. Clearly, we're talking about low income, socioeconomic status access to health insurance, access to, to just a safe environment. And we've realized in public health and in medicine the importance of these environmental factors that play such a, a role. And we've seen research, as you know, coming out that just even by living a few blocks away with a different zip code, the outcome of, of mm. certain health factors can make an, make an impact. And clearly the work I do travels, uh, spans the entire state of Ohio and surrounding states. And I've seen poverty at levels I never thought I would see in what we call a first-world country. So clearly that has an impact on so many factors in our lives. I, um, we used to pay um, health insurance on our employees here. Mm-hmm. And then along came the Affordable Health Care Act. 
mm-hmm. Obamacare. Um, we were a small company, so we would pay half the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got to be that even the sh- the the employees have was more than if they bought the entire thing through Obamacare. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what do you think of Canada and these nations that provide a hundred percent health care period? Yeah, well, we certainly know with research that we are the the number one country that spends more on health care than any other um, industrialized nation yet our and yet health, health outcomes are still some of the poorest that we notice on the world, and it is a continuing challenge, and clearly, as we know, one of the number one issues as we go into this this election um, is looking at health care. So we certainly recognize that as a factor. And we know clearly in the communities where I'm serving, well, what is limited, goofed up? Yeah, limited access to, to a lot of those resources. You know, something's goofed up. If, if we're spending more but providing less, do you have an explanation or a hunch, any, any guess about that? Yeah, there's been a lot of, um, clearly a lot of opinion on this matter, but one of the things that we look at in terms of health care is that we focus so much on treating the disease, and clearly we've seen a shift in medicine. Um, very happy and honored to work in the College of Osteopathic Medicine at Ohio University because we've seen that shift where more and more emphasis, if we place on prevention and early detection, we can see that upstream effect and having a bigger outcome in seeing quality of life, improve quality of life, improve health outcomes. And so there's just very limited dollars that are spent on that public health and prevention side versus what we, we pay on treatment. And more and more of that shift, we hope, continues to happen where the focus is on early stages. So instead of treating diseases, we can focus more on preventing them. Your role at our College of Medicine, the Heritage College, Um, what is it? What do you do there? Um, I am actually a bit of a new position. I I was hired in... um, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I'll interrupt my own question. Yes. You've only been here a reasonably short period of time. Yes, this is actually a... uh, a second career for me, if you will. I actually spent 20 years in healthcare, working in um, a number of positions at Ohio Health in mm-hmm. the, the uh, corporate. I primarily I, in Columbus. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. I actually served uh, 10 years as the founding director of the Office of Health Equity at the Ohio Health Research and Innovation Institute. Mm-hmm. And um, I very blessed for the opportunities I had at Ohio Health, but I felt you know called away from truly what. I, I felt called to do, and that was serving communities and addressing these health care issues um, uh, in communities in need. And when a, a faculty position opened up in the Department of Family Medicine, I was so excited um, because it was providing an opportunity to continue to do research in um, my focus area, which is really addressing health disparities in the rural Appalachia region United States. So uh, there were three of us hired at the same time. I have a background in public health. Another faculty member has a background in health communication, and another in kinesiology, uh, kinesiology or mm-hmm. exercise physiology. So right. they, they hired, you know, a diverse group of faculty to interact with the clinical faculty and really try and provide that best experience for our medical students in conducting research and learning more about the the whole spectrum with respect to how So this is, what, a year underway now? Just at two. I'm starting my third. So still feel quite new to the the university and and figuring out the uh, academia. Well, what's your your goal or or what's your... um, What do you hope to accomplish? Yeah. Well, you know, my, my big passion I've seen through the years is knowing the value of empowering communities with the tools they need to take charge of their health. And I, I've worked with a number of diverse population groups, but I think that um, it's ex- it's an exciting time to be at Ohio University. Uh, President Nellis uh, actually was on board at the same time I was, mm-hmm. and he has expressed that need and importance of the value of, of the campus community connection, the value of community-engaged research. And for me, I feel like that's probably one of the greatest opportunities that I have um, at this campus and in the medical school is to be able to 
showcase and empower communities with the tools, again, and education so that they can make healthy lifestyle decisions to improve their health. Now, somewhere along the way, you also uh, became interested in um, two particular religious groups, right? That's correct. Amish and Mennonite. Yes. Um, I live on Grand Park Boulevard, so often in the morning when I go down and turn on to East State Street to come toward town, the GO bus is there. And there might be a dozen Amish people waiting to use that bus. And, of course, we know that uh, they have a very traditional attire, so they're very recognizable. Yes. Um, When did you first become, I don't know, keyed into these groups? Yeah, I actually was working on a grant with the National Cancer Institute, um, my first job at Ohio Health at Riverside Hospital. And Riverside was partnering with West Virginia University on a a large, again, National Cancer Institute grant that was really looking at addressing the cancer disparities we saw in the Appalachia region in the United States. So I was so excited to have this job to go back into, you know, where I lived in my communities. And one of the big focus areas that we saw in disparities centered on breast cancer, So we partnered with organizations to provide mobile mammography clinics and screenings and education in the more remote parts of our of our Appalachia region. Was there a resistance to availing themselves of these modalities? Well, actually, the program was open to all. And what I noticed on one of my drives to one of the clinics we had was that we had passed several Amish homes, and I'd noticed that no one from the community was out taking part in these screenings, and I. Just ask that that basic question of why why aren't they they coming out? And I'd asked local community members who said that the Amish didn't believe in health care, they weren't interested. But I really felt like that that answer should be given from the community. And I'd found a a little fifty thousand dollar grant from, mm-hmm. funded by Avon, believe it or not. And um, you mean like the cosmetics? <laughs> the cosmetics. Okay. Um, Nice. Yeah, and they were very, so all the little pins and coffee mugs and uh, assortment of items from Avon went into funding certain grants. And a local nurse um, actually in the area had invited me in. She knew the community, and I'd met with 12 Amish women and dozens of children that were cleaning a home for church service and asked them if they wanted to know more about breast cancer, and they did. And that really has spanned a There wasn't any reluctance? No. They were eager to learn. Um, And I... At the time, we knew nothing about um, what the Amish knew about breast cancer, what their breast cancer rates were. And so I had conducted one of the first studies that estimated breast cancer rates, and that's where we really had grown concerned, is that the the research had really showcased the the disparities we saw in breast cancer deaths among Amish and non-Amish women in these rural counties. If I ask a stupid question, just say so. (laughs) Never a stupid question. Okay, so, you know, you think of Amish, and you think of... Uh, their cooking means and and the the systems that they resist using in their homes and in their lives and you know it's possible that the way they live is healthier Um, that the foods that they choose to eat are more pure um, I don't know. All these sort of things, it's possible in my head that that is the case. Now, so what about the incidences of illnesses? Mm-hmm. Do they, do they, are they less likely to deal with a cancer? Or are they more likely? Or is it just about the same as one who is involved in everything? Right. And, you know, that's one of the interesting questions and challenges to answer because there are dozens and dozens of different um, Amish and Mennonite communities that are scattered even throughout our own state. And Ohio has two of the world's largest Amish settlements located in the Holmes County and vicinity and Jockey County and vicinity. But we have dozens of communities. So um, each of the church districts, though, operate very separately. So, for example, in the Holmes County settlement, which, depending on the years, the world's largest settlement – 
there are over 220 church districts, and they, they truly operate very separately. So working on a project like this you know, requires that, that interaction and collaboration with, with every single church, every single group. And it's true that there are some communities that have more resources. There are some communities that are more open to accepting different ways of, um, you know, engaging in the community and technology. But mm. through our work, we've realized that really our focus has been developing community-led programs where we actually train Amish and Mennonite um, women who serve as those collaborative partners and work very closely with the bishops and, and leaders and communities. So I think for us the most important thing that I feel about the work I do is that we're not trying to provide as much access to health care as I feel I am in making sure that people have the knowledge to make informed decisions about what they want to do with their health. And that's really what to me is that critical missing piece so often is that um, not only is there an issue with access, but an issue with understanding disease and understanding what options that you have in taking care of your health. You know, I, I don't know if this is even a good question, but the um, the process that uh, my wife and her is going through now <clears throat> is every 28 days we go, <coughs> excuse me, to the James Cancer Center at... Uh, Ohio State. The Ohio State. <laughs> okay. Um, do, do, um, do the Amish people or the Mennonites uh, avail themselves of that kind of care? You know, I think for the most part they do. I think it, as often with even non-Amish individuals who are facing cancer issues, I think that there's a lot that goes into that decision-making process. So um, I think for us what's been successful is once um, after our $50,000 grant was finished with Avon and seeing that we saw such a disparity in death rates in breast cancer among Amish women versus women in those other counties, um, I mean, that really that really begged the question of why. Why are we seeing these disparities? And Okay, now, I didn't really catch that disparity. So what did you find? Yeah, we, um, found that Amish women were dying at higher rates of breast cancer compared to white women in those same counties, okay. looking at the two of our world's largest Amish settlements here in Ohio. And many people thought, well, they're not... They're dying at higher rates because they are getting screened less frequently for breast cancer. But we didn't find that. We, we actually saw that women were diagnosed in, in more localized stage of breast cancer and diagnosed early and, and dead, often within five to seven years. And, you know, that really has spawned this 20-some-year project of understanding that why. And we embarked on a four-point process to understand that through these years. And number one, developed a culturally competent breast cancer education program that's delivered to communities. Number two, we could roll out clearly access to health care, which we've partnered with hospital systems and agencies across the state and bridging that gap between the culture of health care and the culture of communities. We knew that there possibly um, could be a genetic predisposition to breast cancer and excited to explore that research as well. And then also knew that often communities and hospitals didn't really understand who the Amish were. And we've developed um, a program to go into hospitals to provide training that's led by community members. And I actually um, created a, a national Amish conference that's held every two years to bring in community members and other agencies who are doing great care and providing best practices and serving the community. Now there's uh, what 327 million people living in the United States, something like that. Uh-huh. What... Um, do you care to put a percentage on how many, what percentage or what number of Amish and Mennonites there are? Yeah, that number does vary. Lucky that um, I get to partner with uh, a professor emeritus from Ohio State University, um, Dr. Joe Donemeyer, who's really dedicated so much of his career in chronicling um, the Amish settlements throughout uh, the country, not just here in Ohio. Yes. And that number does vary. I think the interesting statistic that Dr. Donemeyer shares is that uh, one of the ways we see the, the, the life of a population is its doubling rate, as he calls it. So how often does a population double its, um, double mm -hmm. its size? And the Amish 
actually double their population size every 20 years, which really is a sign of how, how committed and, and how much the community does stay very active and grow. But, um, I mean, there are several hundred thousand Amish uh, in over half the states in the United States. So it's, and that's just talking about but Amish communities, but it's a pretty pervasive community that exists throughout our country. To say that they double every 20 years is a good statistic, but I don't know how that compares to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know what I mean? Just right, right. So is that faster or slower or the same? It's depending on the community. I think it's um, it's about the same or sometimes a little faster than other population groups because Amish tend to have larger families huh. um, and those families seem to stay. So okay. usually across the board, that's a that's a sometimes a higher doubling rate than we see in other population groups. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Well, so so out of this, um, okay. So I'm going to change topics significantly. Sure. Are you a photographer? <laughs> Actually, I would say uh, I love photography and love to dabble in it. But I'm not a photographer, so this made our upcoming project even more interesting. Um. Okay, so where I'm going with this, folks, is that recently a book was published, and it is uh, it features particularly photography, uh, photographs of Amish and Mennonite communities and, and per, uh, people, and um, a lot of it, of course, with the the point of health, health care, and unique things that they're dealing with. Now, this uh, this book is entitled Life Through Their Lens, like the camera lens. Mm-hmm. A photo collection by Amish and Mennonite communities. Now, and this is the first volume. I think you hope to publish some subsequent ones. Now, um, has such a book ever been done before? No. That's why we're so excited to um, to get to talk about it and explain its importance uh, because there have been many, many books written about the Amish and Mennonite communities. There's been many photography books, um, many calendars, and so forth that, that showcase those communities. But this is really the first of its kind book that was completely developed by the community and allowed the community to have a voice in sharing with the outside world what they want us to know about them. If I go to Kidron, Ohio, mm-hmm. or I go to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, yes, will I find that the way the Amish are in each of those communities is virtually identical? Not virtually identical. I think there's definitely commonalities across um, Amish and, and Plain communities. Amish and Mennonite communities in some areas, but there's such a diversity in groups. And I think that the point of the photography book was really not to point out those differences, but to I think the community wanted to just share a little story about what it was like on a day-to-day basis of living in their world. And, uh, and really the goal was to focus more on those similarities and common bonds we have, not just as Amish or non-Amish, but just as human beings. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what relates to folks with this book. So I, I'm, I'm not that it matters, but how many of these photographs would you say you were responsible for that were published? Yeah. Um, well, the way the project started, it, it was really an idea of mine that that stemmed over a few years. But what I noticed early on, in, after I was conducting research and outreach with the Amish communities and would speak, most of the questions I was asked had nothing to do with my research. People more interested and understanding how I, as an outsider, got into the community. Mm-hmm. So we we developed a, a fascinating... Because out- they are pretty cautious about uh, sharing with someone not of their faith. Right. Um, I think that, that clearly they are a little more closed group. So we developed a, a, an actually an outreach model that described those key elements in successfully working with Amish and playing communities that we felt could transfer to other cultures as well. And um, so I was really getting ready to start writing that book about that project. And then what we noticed is there was a big shift in in 2011 
where we saw this uh, outpouring of what we call those docudrama TV reality shows and uh, and very reputable channels like the Discover Channel, um, the you know other key um, channels were now producing these docudramas about Amish families and Amish communities um, that really painted a picture that really wasn't true about the communities. We we also saw that um, in the advent of increased tourism and curiosity, uh, I noted what I called a Disney World effect in some of these more popular tourist areas where Amish families would tell us that people would drive in their cars, get out, walk into their yards and take photos of them without their consent and, and interrupt their family life. And and I think from all of that... It's kind of rude. Yeah. And yeah. all of that, we were worried uh, as a team and, and myself that these books and movies and, and shows were really increasing prejudice and discrimination against the community. And the idea was that what if we could take a camera which has been used as a weapon in many cases, if you will, against the community, and use it as a window into their world. What if we could find a photographer who was talented enough, who was willing to give away all her rights to the photos, uh, be, be paid, but give all her rights away to a local nonprofit organization I founded to work with the communities so the communities could own every photo and have full control over what they wanted to say to the outside world about their culture and community. And all that happened. Yes, and it was a... A little over a four-year journey. Um, you can imagine this involves a level of trust that, in mm. some ways, spanned two decades. Um, because photography is is something that is usually not um, a part of Amish culture, and so there was a lot of trust established to make sure that they had full ownership of the photos and the stories that they wanted to tell about their community. You know, I think of how. You know, my grandkids have cell phones. <laughs> um, it, 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 <laughs> I'm going to ask such a dumb question. Do the Amish have communications equipment? You, you know, it depends on the it depends on the church district, okay. and and usually as churches come together, they'll make that decision as an entire group. And clearly, I I don't profess to be an expert about Amish culture. I, mm-hmm. um, you know, these are great questions that our Amish and, and Mennonite community members and friends have answered to, uh, in other conferences that we've held. But, you know, it depends on the group. There are some communities that have cell phones. There are some who have absolutely none. There are some who have a phone down in a more traditional phone booth that's used by the community that some may have to walk, mm-hmm. sometimes miles, to get to that phone. So um, there's just a tremendous amount of diversity in the community. But as a whole, this has really been a first-time project that really gave that chance for Amish community members to to look at photography in a different way, where they could actually tell a story about their lives and be able to to document that to the outside world. Now, you're holding a public presentation um, in a week or two, right? Yes, on November 13th at 6.30 at at Baker Hall at at Ohio University. Very excited about the lecture. And I assume that uh, being there in person, we may be able to see on the screen some photos, right? Yes. Actually, the um, the photo book will be available there as well. And we have a number of photos from the book that we've enlarged. And I think the key to this lecture is that we're bringing together everybody who was part of the project. So we actually have um, bishops and leaders from the community who participated in the project. Um, we have the photographer coming in and the editor and myself. And really the point of the lecture is to focus on how how to conduct community engaged research how do we how do we work with communities and empower them to have a voice in the work that we're doing whether it's health or um, any other project so president Nellis is is interested excited to be there to really showcase this example of a community-led project where the communities had a voice and, and a say in, in how this project worked the overall feeling now that it's occurred the project is underway and and you published a book mm-hmm. um, are they receptive the Amish and the Mennonite communities yes in fact um, they're proud of it yes and I don't know that pride is a word that they usually share in, okay. in the work that they've done but I know that the community members who were involved um, have been very pleased with the outcome and it's exciting too because um, we actually launched a, a Kickstarter campaign. It's an Amazon-run group called Kickstarter, and that actually 
was a way to provide funding for that basis for that book. And the Amish many times, you know, don't have Internet access, but we were really surprised at the number of Amish and Mennonite community members who actually donated as part of that fundraising campaign to provide the necessary funds to actually um, start the book and begin that process. Well, I know it's a, a week away, but if you can leave a little bit of information about uh, the date and time of that meeting again at Baker Hall, um, we'll be happy to publicize it. Sure. So, um, what what um, what's next? You know, what I, I've known you a top for tops an hour now, <laughs> and uh, I get the idea that you always have six projects in mind. Um, what, what, what's your next wish? You know, from, with respect to the photo book, what I'm so excited is that, um, we're actually launching a study that's looking at this photo book and testing the effectiveness of, um, a type of program like this that could increase intercultural communication among med students and other health professionals that we're teaching at Ohio University. And so I received funding internally and externally to take a look at that, and we're finding better ways in which we can um, connect health profession students with cultures and using this book as a tool to help be able to do that. So, you know, I think um, that's exciting. A number of projects with um, here in the Appalachia region that all really center on health disparities. But my big passion really has been, in in going back to that, that little girl who lost her grandmother all those years ago that really passion stems from doing everything that we can do to um, again empower communities with those tools and I'm excited that the photo book which was something led by the community could be a tool to help train and teach um, our students and medical students how to be better health professions and healthcare providers I think that's a key element in moving forward um, with the work that I'm doing Folks, if uh, you tuned in late, our guest today is Melissa Thomas. She is a professor in uh, our Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And um, she's not a medical doctor. Uh, She is um, really engaged in public health issues, public health um, uh, ways of, of educating the public to have a healthier life. Uh, is that okay? That's a great introduction. I I'll think so. I'll have to, to go back <laughs> to that. Yeah, I like to say I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a doctor in public health. And um, it's been wonderful to see the, the nexus of health care and public health through the years and excited to see Ohio University's excitement in really providing that interdisciplinary look at how we are treating patients and and treating communities with health issues. So I think the bigger picture is that um, this project has been a way to help really educate other faculty members and community members and agencies about the importance of collaboration and how community-engaged and community-led research is truly the answer with which we can, you know, address those concerns in the best way possible. You know, I like to say that we focus so much on what's going on in a community and how to fix it. And we often don't take that time to focus on the why. And the only way we can answer why is through that community engagement process. So um, I think I'm excited to be here to really share the importance of asking that why and making sure the communities are at the table in all that decision-making process. How about yourself? Do you have a family? I do not. I live vicariously through my uh, my my brothers and sisters' kids, and uh, I think I've been more married to my work than anything with the passion I have. And what is a, a call it a hobby or an interest that uh, very few would know about you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, do you like to knit? <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to bring out the humanness. Oh yeah, no, I'm a runner and. I just finished hiking the Grand Canyon rim to rim, which was a big bucket list, so I love outdoors, parks. My, my dad did all the mapping of the Grand Canyon. Wow. Well, I'm sure Back that... Back in the uh, 20s and 30s. I bet our paths across somewhere across that canyon on I'll that hike. I bet so. And yep. I've done some in there, too. It's beautiful. When I was uh, more fit, certainly. <laughs> um, 
Well, listen, uh, I'm really glad you came in. Tell Roxanne thanks for thinking of you. Uh, I'm very grateful as well. And, um, you know, as things progress, um, as you take on new projects or or find something that's interesting about the one you've been working on all along but hadn't quite realized before, feel free to rejoin us, you know? I'd love that. And, again, I thank you for the opportunity to... You know, to, to share this work and encourage those, whether you're fascinated with the Amish or just want to learn more about, you know, making that community connection, I think it will be a very interesting lecture because the Amish members on the panel are willing to answer any question the audience has. So um, they encourage those questions. So it's a really key part of that lecture next week. If you're just curious or, or want to know more about communities that are right around here, that are your neighbors, Please stop by because you get a chance to directly talk to the community members about their life and culture. This is really stupid. Do you have a favorite TV program? <laughs> you know, I don't. Uh, I don't get to watch TV all uh, that often. That's I, true. I I can't say that. Um, that I'm. I am. My wife has gotten me stuck on the dumbest show in the world. <laughs> What's that? Ninety Day Romance. <laughs> or my ninety day. What is it? Got ninety day fiance, fiance. Oh, ninety that's day fiance. <laughs> I've oh. heard of the show. Now. Oh mercy! <laughs> and and now they just you know they just finished one. And they started two days later. They started a whole new series. I swear, but you know to to see the interpersonal reactions in people about different topics um, and different cultures. And, you know, even though it has nothing to do with the College of Medicine, (laughs) there are things similar. Because some people are very accepting of, oh, yes, I need that help. And others are resistant. And, and, I mean, you know what I mean. I, I agree. There are so many life lessons to be learned about how we connect with people. And I think what's been exciting to see in the new curriculum that Ohio University's College of Osteopathic Medicine has developed is that there's a big emphasis and focus on that, of understanding the human, the individual behind the disease or the health issues that are facing them. And a lot of commitment's been made to making sure that our medical students are trained to work in the most effective way possible in communicating with individuals, regardless of culture, regardless of background. And you're right, those TV shows is as crazy as it can be sometimes, do have us, teach us a lesson on how we interact with other people. Yeah. And uh, do you like horses? I do love horses and love dogs. Yeah, what can you, what, what's your favorite breed? Well, I had a rescue, um, a little silky terrier. There you go. Uh, the, the, the mighty little ones, you know, and uh, she passed away a couple years ago, so still looking for another dog. But I, I love dogs. They can teach us a lot about life, can't they? Absolutely. <laughs> Well, listen, I'm sorry to be so silly at the end here. (laughs) Hey, Scott, can you help me over here? I don't know if I'm ready to do what I'm supposed to do. Uh, We have a brand new system here, Melissa. Oh, I see that. And uh, we're all learning it. So if I just stay the way I am at Mm 59.50, it's going to play the thing and then go into CBS, right? Yes, yes. Yep. But what if I wanted to fill something in the meantime? Just click right there. Hasn't that played already? Nope. Oh. And let's see, do I have time to do it? I do. Okay, I'll do it. Where do you go when you need car insurance? Matthews Insurance Agency at 240 Columbus Road is a friendly, reliable, locally owned small business that has served the Athens area since 1945. We hope when you need insurance, you will call us at 740-593-5573 or Google Matthews Insurance and fill out an online quote request on our website. Matthews Insurance, we're here to help. All right, just about, uh, I don't know, four seconds, and it's rainy out there. See you. The 70th year of service Tomorrow. to Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. W-A-T-H-F-N. This is CBS News on the Hour. Real news, real reporting. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. At least three American women and six of their children are dead after they were shot to death by drug cartel gunmen in northern Mexico. 
The victims were members of the Mormon community on their way to a wedding in the States. Leif Langford's sister-in-law was among them. Just outside of town, they were ambushed by heavy gunfire to the extent that one of the vehicles exploded. Correspondent Adrian Bard begins our team coverage in Mexico City. We were told by one of the members of the family who's a well-known anti-crime activist that the family was traveling in that area and they were apparently caught in crossfire. But that has not been verified. And um, he was also very adamant to say that the family had been receiving threats from organized crime. I'm Stephen Portnoy at the White House. President Trump says the attack was conducted by two vicious drug cartels with the American victims caught between them. Mr. Trump says if Mexico needs or requests help in cleaning out these monsters, the U.S. stands ready, willing, and able. Sometimes, he says, you need an army to defeat an army. Mexico's president responds saying, I don't think we will need foreign intervention, calling war irrational. Police in Wake Forest, North Carolina, say they busted a drug lab that was manufacturing psychedelics and inserting them into vape pens. Kim Bowers lives nearby. I'm absolutely stunned. Never in my wildest imagined would think something like that could happen in this just nice little neighborhood with a school just down the street. Police say the lab was worth about $4 million. Popeye's lovers take their chicken sandwich.